Boom! What's up, everyone? Welcome to Simulation. I'm your host, Alan Sakyan. Very excited. We are at episode 400. We're going to be talking about the biolab of the future. We have Dash Shrivatsa joining us on the show. Hello. Thanks for having me, Alan. I'm super excited, super grateful for Alex K. Chen for introducing us. We got to spend some time in Cambridge at the Engine, and you were teaching me so much about what you're building with Radix. For those that don't know, Dash Shrivatsa is the founder and CEO of Radix Labs, which provides wet lab automation so you can focus on doing science rather than manual labor. Now you can find the link in the bio. It's Radix, R-A-D-I-X dot bio. All right, Dosh, let's start things off with one of our favorite questions to ask. What are your current thoughts on the direction of humanity? Uh, I think it's pretty clear that if we continue on the same trajectory that we have been, we're pretty much fucked, which I think is a, <laughs> uh, not a great steady state for uh, you know how society has been going. And yeah. unpack that more. Well, between serious social problems, the decay of, or the inability of democracy to compete at a, at a structural level compared to more authoritarian forms of government, carbon pollution and the uh, rise of humanity as extremely large energy consumers, we've managed to put a significant dent in the ecosystem of a planet as well as a significant dent in societal progress. And I think both of those are really regrettable. Uh, that that's kind of the state of affairs. Um, I wish we could do better. I think we're capable of it, and it makes me sad that we aren't doing it. So right now is so pressing to have the millennials, Gen Z, just efforts to tackle these issues that you talk about, having robust democracy, having a robust cohesion with our ecology. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, and if we don't, the world in 2050 will be a place that I wouldn't want to live. And as society progresses at an exponential pace, we screw it up exponentially fast. And it's really regrettable that that's kind of the case. Yeah, it's hard to slow down and think when the old code of the economic machine just keeps propagating. There's no way to slow down. We can't. So we have to either take action faster and faster every year or keep falling down the hole faster and faster every year. That's kind of what we got. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'm, I'm, it's, it's great to hear a very you know, realistic young person's perspective on it. I like that a lot. Um, let's jump into the journey, Dosh. This is so interesting that you're a self-taught computer scientist. You started in 2008 when you were just 10 years old, and you were just obsessed with computers. Mm -hmm. Teach us about this. Computers are one of those things that I think is an unfair fact of our, of our current existence. Uh, come on, like if you, can, if, if you went to somebody and said, Take, take thought and make it go 10 billion times faster. And you have access to that in your pocket, in, your, in front of us right now. If you say that with anything else in a world without silicon chips, you get laughed at. But I really enjoy the fact that there is this cheat code. And if you, by, by pushing incantations into little buttons on a, on, a, on a piece of metal, you can then allow this cheat code to be used to your desires, which I think is a really cool privilege that I'm able to live in a world where these cheat codes are so readily accessible. Um, I would be a very different person if I was born before the rise of silicon. Um, this, these cheat codes and what they're enabling is insanity. And I like how you, I like how you explain it as a, a big cheat code for civilization. Can you, can you teach us about what it was when you're 10 and you're starting to really unpack what a computer is that like hooked you into being really interested into them? I wanted to play video games. I thought they were 
some of the best modern art forms that we ever had. And I wanted to go and I got a halo in my computer and I said it'd be really great if Master Chief was a Teletubby. Um, <laughs> so I, I was like, oh, I'm going to go do this. And I started modding the game. Mods, yeah. And after that, I was like, you know what? Parents, I don't know what a financial recession is, but I need a gaming computer. And through a considerable effort that I must commend them on, they, uh, they catalyzed um, me building my first computer. And ever since then, it's just been like a world has opened up that I never knew existed. And man, you can take advantage of it. And the internet will tell you exactly how. And it's really cool. So and the longer I spend with computers, the more amazed I am that they work at all, that we can make them at all, and that they're used their, their applicability is so high to, to fields that you would never think. Farming, for example, right? Like modern tractors use computers to actually increase yield and plan their routes. And that's amazing to me that it's this one, this one piece of technology that has more or less unlimited applicability. So I decided to learn about the technology itself and apply it to different places. And what was it like also when you uh, because you were born in California, but then you went to Bangalore. Mm -hmm. And you actually dropped out of high school and ran a startup. Mm -hmm. What? <laughs> Teach us about this. So going to India was actually a really formative experience in my life because I grew up, you said, not far from where we're doing this interview now in Silicon Valley. And I thought for some reason that Silicon Valley was the real world. And Bangalore and India and in general taught me that like, no, it's in no way is Silicon Valley the real world. We live four years in an alternate future here. Um, and while I was in high school, um, my, my peers um, were not into science and technology. You got a lot more economists and people that were really interested in inheriting their family business. So I was kind of a, a loner and decided to, I pretty much grew up on the internet, taught, taught myself things that I know. And one day I said, oh, look, there is this API that I can use to, to trade stocks. Uh, my dad had like a trading account. And I asked for API access and he gave it to me. Um, after playing like a video game in which you could, they'd give you 100,000 virtual dollars and you'd go play a stock portfolio. Mm -hmm. So through a strange series of events, including three projects that I had worked on to learn how machine learning data ingest and like high performance bare metal computing, not in the cloud, but using physical servers would actually work. Um, uh, those three projects kind of came together into making a, an options trading platform. And um, so I went out, fundraised a bit, and started becoming a financial advisor, I guess. I traded an, stocks on behalf of some people. An options trading platform, and mm -hmm. you're in high school? Yeah. It was, like I said, accidental. It was three projects that when you put them together, made one of those. I did not intend to start this. It was just something that I was like, huh, this code, when I run it on this game, makes good money. Hey, Dad, can you like, help me with this? Because he knows how the financial world works. And he was like, oh, wow, this is actually pretty good. We should, we should use this in the real world. And he was a, a, a great enabler of that. Yeah. And then what is it like to, to take on the, you know, the countercultural idea of leaving high school? It was very weird. It was made a lot easier by the fact that I could show I was making money. Mm. Uh, but if it wasn't for that, my parents would have eviscerated me. Mm. Very traditional Indian parents. And they were not about it until I showed them, hey, look, this thing actually makes a lot of money. We should go do this. Um, it's not really affected me much in my life, primarily because I got a good story out of it. 
right? Like if I didn't get that good story, I I don't know. A lot of things would be different, I guess. But that that weird, hey, I dropped out of high school, ran a startup, and it actually like did well, is, is something that is is again extremely extremely lucky to have that experience. And then how did you go from India to Cambridge to Boston and to Odin College, MIT? So. I knew right away that I did not want to do my higher education in India. There, whenever I read a paper from some interesting computer science topic, it was always written by like some guys, for some reason, always in the States. And at that point, I was like, yeah, I, I love the States, grew up there. Uh, I like being able to drink water out of the tap. Like, I'm going to move back. So my parents were very supportive. And in 2015, I joined the Olin College of Engineering, um, which was a very interesting institution compared to a lot of traditional universities. Um, I very much enjoyed my time there because I'm not so much motivated by, oh, here's a piece of paper, go do this work, we know the answers, we're gonna check it against an answer key. That never got me going in high school. And, and this I, is what's called a P-set? Yeah, a problem, problem set. set. Yeah. Okay, um, which is normally what we get as an assignment to take home with a bunch of questions that are cover the subject matter. Exactly. That was discussed. Exactly. But the thing that always irritated about me about these is that these, these questions are never in context. They're never, they're, they're little bits and pieces that test your knowledge about a certain topic, but always in isolation, mm. never in the greater mm. context of trying to build a system that uses maybe 10, 100, 1,000 concepts that may be PSET questions. And that's why I went to Olin, because it was entirely project-based. There are um, very few classes that have PSETs, it's mostly like, oh, uh, we just taught you this, this theory in class. Go apply it. Go build a robot that uses that theory. We taught you how to make a Segway stand up. Go build a Segway that stands up. And that, to me, is much more real when you can see the impact of your work. And it culminates in, in a robot, not a, uh, even if you didn't get a good grade on the thing, you have like a cool robot that stands up. And PSETs never never culminated in something that I felt proud of. They were always just like, here's a letter grade, here's a percentage of how much you got correct, which doesn't really motivate me. I'd much rather have a thing that does a cool thing rather than, oh, you got an A, good. You learn about a complex concept and then you build something in the real world that models what you learned. Yeah. And how did you even get, yeah, you're reading the papers and the, you're like, okay, and I want you know the, to drink out of the running tap water, yes, mm -hmm. yes. But then how was it like, okay, it's Olin, it's Cambridge, I know Boston area, I know I want to go there. How was that? That was 2015. That was 2015. Um, my cousin had just visited and she was going through the college application cycle when I was in 11th grade. And she went to MIT and was also accepted to Olin. And she said, hey, I went to MIT and I was kind of miserable. So I figured I'd do the opposite. Maybe I wouldn't be miserable in college. And that was pretty much that. Like That was what sealed it, a conversation Whoa. with my cousin. And after that, like, got into MIT and Olin and then was like, yeah, I'm going to go to the one that my cousin said she regretted not going to. Yeah, that's, that's quite interesting. And it's great that you actually also had that uh, cousin that was able to help you um, with another piece of information on the subject. Exactly. Right. I knew nothing about college. I, the, the, the exposure that I had to colleges was PDFs on the internet uh, that people would write or master's theses or PhD theses. And I thought that was what college was. Uh, so having some context from a close family member that actually went to college was super helpful. 
And then you actually helped build two classes, computer networks and quality of engineering analysis. Uh, quantitative engineering analysis. Quantitative engineering analysis. Yep. So teach us about building classes while you're attending classes. That was the most fascinating part because Olin puts a heavy emphasis on pedagogical diligence. Uh, and that was something, I didn't even know what the word pedagogy was before joining Olin, but it was something that has always been really near and dear to my heart. How do I, it, it, concepts are all well and good, but they're not that good unless you can effectively convey them, right? Um, and at Olin, when classes get rebuilt or retuned, students have a massive say in what goes on. So for computer networks, my, uh, I approached a professor and said, hey, I'd love to TA your class next semester. And he says, well, I'm about to rip it down and start all over. And I said, hey, I'd love to help with that. So I moved into his house over winter break and we redid the entire course. And that was really interesting. Quantitative engineering analysis was a little bit different. It was a class that Olin was essentially beta testing on, on, a, on a crop of, of hamsters like freshmen. Um, and it was the thesis that, again, that linearity, linear algebra controls signals and systems, mechanics and dynamics, while traditionally PSAT classes and even you can turn them into project-based classes, really had a large overlap between them. And it'd be really good if you could learn linear algebra and use it to make a signals and systems thing work or a mechanics or dynamics thing work. So they were always taught in context. And uh, that was really alluring to me. And I decided to, to, to join that class and, and help be one of the hamsters. And that class was a shit show. It was the first run of that class. And the, the professor and the teaching team learned a lot and made it a lot better the second time round. But I had a wonderful time being able to say, hey, I don't think this unit worked. Here's the reasons why. Please take this as feedback and be able to make it better for people down the line. Yeah. And because the thing that that class did was work everybody way too hard. Right? The professors were super psyched to get this, this entirely new class, this entirely new engineering curriculum up and running. So they're like, oh yeah, like, take all this work. And uh, most, of the, most of the students just were like, oh, I'm dying. So <laughs> I, I really in, I enjoyed that because when you have more stuff to do than you have time, you're forced to pick what do you yeah. want to work on and why do you want to work on it. And yeah. that was the ideal vehicle because also the class had no grade. So it was, perfect for, it was a perfect line for experimentation. I, tried and took, I took each one of the projects and tried to do something weird and wacky with each one of them. Um, yeah, and yeah. that was really, really rewarding. Um, yeah, experimentation. Also, just so cool to be able to build classes. Well, that, that process itself, you, you're, it's pedagogy. You have to learn how to be able to teach something to people. And that whole process is a very reflective process on your knowledge base, on what you want to teach to others. That's good stuff. Yeah. And, okay, and then you also, you, for two years, were a senior level TA in, this, in computer science. Mm -hmm. Okay. And then did things like midnight math. You were also like doing very social things. Yeah. Excellent. And you were doing reading one academic paper and going to a talk per weekday? Um, I would try and read archive new CS every day just, just to keep some semblance of the real, or the, the, the real world of the ivory tower around me. Olin was not an incredibly academically motivated school. Uh, there, there were nobody that really published papers. The, the professors weren't there to do research. They were there to teach, which is really unique. Um, so I wanted to keep a good amount of academia in my system like I had during high school. So I started reading papers every day, and that was really helpful. And for things like Midnight Math, which was a club that I helped run that um, students would 
show up at midnight and would teach each other pieces of math. And those papers were a fascinating, fascinating um, way to, to expose people to new topics and expose myself to them so I would learn more. And I still maintain that to this day. I, I try and read a paper every day. Uh, I, I'm more, more these days, it's been around one a week or two a week. Um, but Running a company. Yeah, 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 yeah. kind of gets in the way of uh, <laughs> academic uh, excellence. But yeah. it's still something I really value because it's, the, it's one of the few things that keeps like real bleeding edge stuff in, in, my, in my repertoire of knowledge. Yeah, you are so uh, endogenously motivated. It's, it's fascinating because when someone at a young age is able to identify what interests them and then just kind of like slurp up what interests them in like high quantities, yeah. um, that's going to catalyze problems. It's the features. do what you love advice, right? Which I think is terrible advice for the record, right? Because <laughs> the people that love stuff will already do it and the people that don't know what they love, that's just like, oh, well, fuck. Um, but yeah, I was really lucky to be able to be like, oh, I went from directly from the fireman phase of, I want to be a fireman, I want to be an astronaut, to I want to be a computer scientist. And that has never changed. And it's, there's just more and more and more to learn about. And I keep getting more excited every day to be a computer scientist. We yeah. have a question. From the audience, yes. Yeah, Connor Peterson asks, um, yeah. what was your aha moment when you uh, decided to go into programming? Ah. Uh, it was when I thought that that Teletubby was pretty cool. I wanted Master Chief to be a Teletubby. Um, and I wanted to go figure out how to do that. And there was this like modding scene that, for Halo that was kind of cool. And at that point I was like, oh, this is, this is interesting. Let me, let me work with this. Um, but I mostly left it alone after that for a while because I figured hardware was the cool stuff because it's the stuff that actually runs software. Uh -huh. When I got really into it was, um, just scripting away really dumb things in my life. For example, mm. I had to go and do, oh God. Uh, my parents signed me up for this thing called IndianMathOnline.com. Traditional <laughs> Indian parents, right? Um, and it, it gave you a bunch of math questions and said, go solve them. And me being the lazy bastard that I am said, I can fix this with Python, so I don't actually have to do this. <laughs> so my parents would like check, did Dosh, did you do this today? And I just go, uh-huh. And I'd go run the Python script in the back. And that was a great way to get my parents off my back and, and, and also learn this programming thing so I could yeah. go and automate this, what I viewed as kind of annoying task. Interesting, so this answer is so cool is that when you see something that you want to change in like a digital environment, you want to know how to be able to make that change. And so you decided to learn how to program to be able to mod out Master Chief, to be able to automate away some, you scripted out the homework. Yeah, like, it, it was just math questions. It, yeah. was, it was all I hate in the world of, of these like rude questions that, that would teach you nothing. But however, I did know how to make all of the questions answerable in the same way. So like, why not? Yeah, yeah. Okay, let's jump into the universal operating system for biology labs. Sure. Radix. All right, let's do this. So we have a bunch of great assets as well along mm -hmm. the way. Um, let's tell the story about the digital audio workstations along the way. Sure. Let's do so it. at Radix, we build um, programming languages, compilers, and operating systems. While this sounds really abstract, it's actually a a thing that a lot of other fields have done. This right here is a photo of a really cool piece of software called uh, Digital Audio Workstation, or DAW. And DAWs were how, after the 80s, when we got all these dope music synthesizers that Moog and other, other companies like that would make, and we, we, silicon computers got good, some guys figured out, what if we took the Moog and put it into the computer? And that was how uh, Digital Audio Workstations were born. 
Um, and it's an incredibly effectful technique, right? When you see, I don't know, like Skrillex making music, right? Like the dude works on his laptop. He doesn't have a, a huge soundboard. And if you ever watch like Dead Mouse or something, right? This guy has an amazing studio that you can have in your laptop, which is an incredible, uh, uh, like, po uh, powerful tool. Uh, and in my, in the, in the ontology of of what a computer does, programming languages are just ways to express abstract ideas. And reason here, this is a really good way to express what you want the sound to be shaped like. And it is a programming language. It's actually, if you look at it kind of funnily, it's an integrated development environment. It's a developer tool for developers that are musicians to go apply their knowledge to, to different, um, to apply their knowledge in the computational realm to go make music. And um, it's a, it's a beautiful tool. It, it simulates the whole thing. And if you uh, go to the next asset, I think uh, number 11, um, you can kind of see what you would like in a, in a music. You have your waveforms along the bottom. You have these instruments in the middle. You have a mixer at the top. And you've got this big list off to the side of all these different instruments that you can download. It's, it's interesting to me that you can just go and download a sound. Just and like you could download a part of a biology wet lab. Exactly. So I, I, I was very confused as to why that exact tool didn't exist. When, when musicians and uh, if you go to the, the next asset number 12, um, but this is actually kind of what it looks like. You can go flip the rack around in the back and you get a cabling environment where you can go and hook up all these virtual synthesizers to each other. This was amazing to me. Um, and musicians had it good. And the next asset also shows that um, like people that had laser cutters, mechanical engineers also had it good. This is um, if if you wanted to laser cut this like all the, the shapes in blue on the left, uh, you could pass it through a compiler and it would say, "Here's how I'm going to move the laser cutter mm. to to make this thing to cut this thing." And also, in some cases, even pack all these shapes together so you can get you can reduce the least uh, so you can make the least like material waste. Yes. And these are wow. these are basic tools for 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 musicians and mechanical engineers. Uh, and I thought it was really interesting that this didn't exist for biology. Um, that we can write a script for having the most effective way to put all the shapes that we're about to cut out yeah. into a, the smallest material waste that's going to happen And possibly. while this may look like something like it's, it's, it's in the discipline of mechanical engineering, it's really not. This is totally a computer science problem. And I, I, it, was, it was really interesting to me that you could take computer science and apply it to make other fields better. Yes. The next asset, though, is where it really gets wild for mechanical engineering. This is a Bugatti Chiron's brake. And if you look at it, it's really wacky looking. It has like all these like organic looking cutouts. Mm -hmm. And it is an incredibly performant machine. Uh, it, it can stop a Bugatti, right? So, um, Which is going like 200 plus miles yeah, an hour. Yeah, 50 or something ridiculous yeah. like that, right? Um, and the really interesting thing about this one is that a human didn't design this brake. If you buy a car, a human designs the brake. Right? Yeah. This, is, this is one where we actually figured out that it was easier, because the, the problem itself of stopping a Bugatti going 250 miles an hour, an expensive multi-ton machine covered in leather and chrome, it, it's really hard to make that brake. So they actually copped out here and said, actually, we have our CAD tools are good enough now of where we can give a program the constraints that we would like it to do, maybe stop a Bugatti. Yes. And it should design the brake for us. That's why this looks so organic. And uh, the next asset as well, 
um, again, this is a quadcopter. This is a design for a proposed quadcopter that you give it the forces that you would like the quadcopter to be able to withstand, and it figures out what the quadcopter's frame should look like. Yeah. And to me, this is this is applying the black magic of of silicon computers to ma now making not only audio but shapes. Yes. Um, and better than a human ever could. It would have taken a lot of time to make a human's design work really well to stop a Bugatti. But now we're getting to this point of where we can just say, I'd like it to stop a Bugatti. And it goes and figures out how to do that. And this field that's blowing up right now is called generative design mm -hmm. in CAD and in manufacturing. Mm -hmm. And so, like you said, you're labeling specific constraints that then something as powerful as the permutational capability of a very strong computational processor can just do yeah if you if you want to if you want to build a good antenna the, there's one way to do it which is you you sit there with a really experienced radio engineer um, and you you go and design your antenna but the way that NASA did it for the X-band antennas which by the way look like a broken like toothpick they're like ridiculous um, was just say we know to some extent, we have an idea of how radio waves work, and we have these radio wave simulators. Let's just try like 100 billion different antennas and just pick the best one as it, as it occurs to our model. And that antenna looks really wonky. So these generative design thing is here to stay because it's cheaper than hiring a really sick RF engineer. Those guys are expensive, and, yeah. they, they can, and it can produce designs faster and better than a human could, yes. which is, I and think is really powerful. It's super powerful. And then the question is, why do we not have this in biology? Though? Yeah, exactly, yes. right? So I, after dropping out of uh, Olin, I was there for two years, um, moved into a frat at MIT, and my friend said, you should hang around the media lab. <laughs> so I hung around the media lab That's and awesome. <laughs> eventually became a staff scientist. Yeah. Right? Like, by literally, yeah. like, by, by just kind of like crashing classes, because I would still go to class even though because classes are really cool, but they're not exactly, you don't have to be in an educational institution to walk into a room. Which is so cool. And right. I think it, it's something that we need to make sure loud and clear that people know, like you can walk into Stanford, Berkeley, Harvard, MIT, colleges around the world. You can just walk into the class. And usually the professor is like glad that you're there because they're like, I love this material. I want to teach it to you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Please come listen to it. <laughs> the passion of my life. You don't have to be a student to sleep on yeah. the couch either. Exactly. <laughs> we, yeah, we, uh, when, when we were in Cambridge, we did a, a one. Yeah. Okay. All right. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes. Yeah. But when I when I was in this in this class, there were a lot of biologists everywhere. And as a computer scientist, I have a great life. I can sit in my underwear and make a decent living without ever leaving my house if I was so inclined. Um, when I looked at my friends that were also in this class, with a large majority of them were biologists, their life seemed kind of sad to me. They. They worked so hard, they built amazing things, but they did so much work to get it there, right? They could never sit in their underwear at home. And actually one of the reasons that is there's no software to really help biologists do the whole biotech thing. Um, there's nothing like we have in CAD. There's nothing like we have in audio workstations. There's nothing like a programming environment that we're so spoiled by in computer science like Python, <laughs> right? So what, what happens is, if you look at the next asset, um, is... Dosh decided he wants to spoil biologists. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, nobody, yeah. so this is actually like how biologists spend their time. This is a pretty common cell cloning experiment. Um, and if you look, this, this is 180 minutes, and it's all done by hand. 
every day, an average, per, an average biologist with a PhD spends like three and a half to four and a half hours a day doing like manual labor, things they've done a thousand times before um, for Whoa. their job. And that makes per me sad. Per day? Yeah. No, like more than 50% of biologist day is manual labor. Is manual labor 50% of the day? Yeah. Holy cow, that's repetitive that they, wow, this is... Right, if you had to make a sine wave, right, you, and you're a musician, you can just like, you can, you can go and fiddle with a signal generator, but you don't have to do that every time, right? You have a signal generator, you know how to set it up. Um, but a biologist, you have to go from scratch every time, right? There's, there's no kind of easy shortcuts besides putting things in the freezer. Um, and there, there's no software to help them do this. So as a result, when I was at MIT, half of my group was computer scientists and half of them were biologists. And I didn't realize just how much work they did that I considered like not the work that a person with a PhD should be doing. And it really, really shocked me to, to go to the next asset. So quick, just quick, mm -hmm. you, your research scientist uh, at MIT Media Lab now. So interesting. Not anymore. That, but, well, but yeah. That, yeah, but what? How did that? That's so cool that that happened. And then you're you're analyzing processes in biology and the scientists that are doing. And you're like, what is going on that we're spending so much of our creative potential on manual labor when we could be running so many different experiments with this creative potential? Exactly. That we have? It, it's as if you took that 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 asset uh, asset number thirteen. Um, Mm -hmm. where, where a mechanical engineer, if you said go lay out this, this, uh, this, this part so that it uses the minimum amount of waste, like this would be the equivalent of instead of a computer doing it, a mechanical engineer is like, oh, I want to move the square a little bit to the left and a little bit to the right, whereas a computer can do it in like seconds, right? Yeah. And there was nothing, for a lot of biology, there's a lot of stuff that you're like, oh, this should be a computer science problem and it should be addressed as such. Not, this is not a mechanical engineering problem, this is a computer science problem. And there are tasks in biology where that, that the software to make the computer science problem solve the biological problem just hadn't been written. Yes. And so I started writing that software. And, and can we go back to asset 16 quick, Ron? I would just want to explain <clears throat> for those that uh, may be unfamiliar quick, um, there are processes that happen in wet labs for biologists, pipetting, pipette aiding, other pipetting tests, moving, calculating, centrifugation, microscopy. Maybe just explain the, yeah, sure. the manual. So pipetting, pipetting is another pipetting test are all pretty much the same thing. I want to like mix two fluids, right? Like that's kind of what pipetting is, or maybe even take one fluid and measure out a specific volume from it and turn it into two fluids. Like that's what pipetting is. So you get these biologists with these micro pipettes, essentially just doing all day. And that to me, there are robots that will do this and nobody used them and I was very confused as to why. Centrifugation here is just like spinning your fluid really fast so it separates into layers. Um, and microscopy, you squint at your fluid so you can look at the little cells floating around. And the pipetting thing was really, really irritating to me because it is just moving fluid around. And we have robots that are really good at moving fluid around and they didn't get used. And that was a, a very puzzling thing to me. And if you go to the next asset, number 17, like if you do it right, um, like everything that's in yellow here was like pretty much pipetting. That's how much time a biologist spends per day, like 
literally doing doink, 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 doink. And this is from like an academic paper from that was like looking at how biologists spend their day. And that's a, that's a huge chunk in yellow that we have automation for that we're literally not using, right? Like people have these robots. My lab had one of these robots yes, yes. and these grad students are sitting there next to the robot and doing it by hand. And I was just like, Pfft. like, you gotta be kidding me, right? And like, what why? is their reason why they're doing it manually rather than using pipetting robots, which are already widely available yeah, and even can, sitting next to them? Exactly, right? Um, the, the key point here is that the, when, you, when you go and make audio or you go and um, make a, a 3D model, it doesn't feel like programming, right? Even though that's a programming language in an IDE, there's no, in no way is that programming to the, what it means to a computer scientist. There's no monospaced font and indentation rules and curly braces and semicolons. It feels like an organic audio engineer. But these robots, the only way to program them was in like either, a, like it was in a programming language, a screwed up dialect of C that doesn't have for loops, for example, is actually how you go and program these things. The nicest ones are Python, and there's like one on the market that you can go and buy that runs Python. But even then, these protocols, these things that the grad students are doing are so dynamic that that Python would change so frequently that they're just like, fuck it, I'm not gonna spend the time to like rewrite this every time I need to go do yeah. this thing. I'm not a programmer, I don't even know how to write yes. C, right? I'm not, I can't use this. I'm, I'm prohibited by the user experience of actually using these tools, right? And that was what I wanted to solve, was it's not really a technical problem. It's a user experience problem that these biologists have to overcome to use this, this automation. And I, I, had, I figured, like, hmm, there, there must be a better way than, than forcing biologists to learn C, right? Like, nobody should have to learn, nobody that doesn't want to learn C should be forced to learn C, especially if it doesn't support for loops. Like, that's, that's like a cruel and unusual punishment to give to anybody, much less a person who is explicitly not there to do that. They're there to do science, they're there to do biology, not write C code, right? And what is the user experience of the year, you know, 2030? How can this be so easy for us to just run these creative? And so this is what really lit the fire within you. Yeah, so I saw there's this, there's this website called Thingiverse. Thingiverse is a repository of 3D models um, that we go, you click a model, you click download, and then you can click print because we have 3D printers now. And it would go and print the model that you downloaded off the internet. You can go download a shape. Right? And I'd really be able, I really, really like to be able to download a drug, right? Like if I am unable to access insulin, but I'm able to have a high CO2 environment uh, and some yeast shipped to me, I want to be able to make insulin somewhere else, right? And that, that abstraction of downloading drugs didn't exist because we can download music, we can download shapes. Why can't we download chemicals? And that was really what, what started this. Whoa. How do we, yeah, how do we download a chemical? Explain that to us. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I got nothing. So the way that I like to think about these is, is again, through the lens of CAD and, and music. When you go and model a shape, you work over the programming language of triple integrals, which are ways to represent volumes in three-dimensional space, and um, uh, Boolean combinations of such. So if you have a triple integral that says x squared plus y squared plus z squared is less than or equal to one, that's a sphere in three space. And if you intersect that with a, no, with a not end of a sphere of x squared plus y squared plus z squared is less than or equal to 0.5, you now have a hollow sphere with a thickness of 0.5. Right? Okay, yep. So that's how we do shapes. That's the programming language of shapes. And the programming language of, of, of biology is nothing more than 
this, right? It's pipetting, right? Mo mixing and measuring fluids. It's microscopy, looking at them, uh -huh. centrifugation, spinning them, calculating, okay, we can do math. Um, but the instruction set there isn't that large. It's uh -huh. like 14 or 15 instructions that if you can make a good user experience around manipulating these basic primitives, yes. it doesn't know, it doesn't, when you're catting, it doesn't feel like you're working with these mathematical triple integrals. Yeah. Uh, it feels like you're working with tools, like sculpt the shape. And I wanted to figure out what's, what's a good tool that I can use to make that low-level thing exposable to users. Yes. Um, because right now, um, if you go to the next asset, um, biologists use these tools at a very basic level, but they are the ones doing it. They're the ones, they're the ones actually physically going and doing it. And to bring it back to computers, like these are computers. These three ladies in the movie Hidden Figures, if you've never seen it, like Such that's a what a computer was. Like she yeah. was a computer. Computing, right? Yeah, the astrophysics that were needed. Yeah. By hand, yeah, yeah. right? Because we didn't have silicon chips at the time, right? So you would just do what chips do these days, but by hand to go to space, yeah. right? We got chips. These wonderful ladies were obsoleted, but humans got us to space. But now we can do math faster than these ladies ever could. Yeah. And I wanted to see, I wanted to see this movie, but for biologists, right? Is there a way that ah. right now these three would be grad students or some PhD somewhere, really smart, really good at their job, forced to do manual labor? Yeah. They didn't have silicon chips. They don't have automated biology labs or, or even semi-automated biology labs or even a way to describe what the hell they're trying to do. These guys at least had mathematical notation. Biologists have word documents that just kind of spell it out in natural language. Um, so I, I started when I was given the ability to choose a research topic when I was at MIT, mm -hmm. I decided that I would work on, as every good academic would, a problem that has uh, massive importance and will not then the, the completely the hardware for it doesn't exist and uh, <laughs> if you go to the next asset these things were called programmable microfluidic arrays and I figured this was where the future of biology would go mm. um, each of these little like things over here 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 and here are valves okay um, and the little blue and yellow things you see going around is our fluids, mm -hmm. our water with food coloring in them. And what's, what are the valves enabling for the, those little microfluid streams to do? So down here is a storage area. This is memory. Mm. Up here is the one computation that you can perform, mixing two fluids. Okay. And this, this, this was a chip that somebody had made that said, oh, we'll give you the instructions of, or the very low level instructions of you can turn this valve on and off. Yes. And by yes. actuating valves in specific patterns, you can cause any fluids in the storage area to become mixed and yes. then stored back. Yes, yes. And like And that. measured. And measured, yeah. Yes. Because you can okay. kind of move it a certain way, chop it off, and then move the rest of it. Yes, right? yes. So And then you're doing in micro quantities, these are in like microliters. Microliters or nanoliters, yeah. Or micro to nanoliters, and you're doing things like mixing at that scale yep. and then analyzing what has happened. So I didn't know these chips existed and I was really fascinated by them, especially this particular kind. Because this is an automation process in yeah. biology, and you were like, "Yay!" Exactly. Right? I'm like these guys have figured it out. Like they, they know that these things are the future. Uh, there is some companies like Theranos that were actually built on technology like microfluidics that made big promises. But I thought, independent of Theranos, that this was a cool technology, especially the programmable aspect of this. Yes. But I wanted to go like mess with it for a while and see how much of biology I can make it do. Unfortunately, these are, these devices don't really exist. So uh, I, I I as a good academic said, future work. What happened with microfluidics? What, why don't they exist? They're really freaking hard to make and usually... So in, in, in computers we have two kinds of chips, right? 
you can go and buy a chip like the one in here mm -hmm. from Intel where they took some, some light, shined it really, really hard on some silicon, and etched a specific computer into the chip. Mm -hmm. This is, in, in this case, an Intel x86 processor. You try to make it do something it's not designed for, maybe like process audio or, or do Fourier transforms in real time. It, it's a general purpose computer. It'll do a pretty decent job, but it is a little bit too general. Uh, it, it's a little bit too specific because it's been, it's been nailed down to this, this, this exact pattern of logic gates and you would simulate other things using that. Um, there is another kind of device called a field programmable gate array, which if you look at the name of this, programmable microfluidic array, programmable gate array, there's only kind of one word in difference, gate versus array. Uh, yeah, gate versus microfluidic. These, these kinds of devices would say, you know what, you can define a chip in software and we'll go through this process that will eventually result in a bitstream getting written out to this, this chip, which is actually a chip made up of lookup tables. Lookup tables are, sim are, are capable of simulating logic gates. So by setting the, the lookup table's values, you could say, you are now a, a thing that can process LiDAR light or, or, or video or, or sensor data. And then you put a different set of ones and zeros in the lookup tables, and now it's a chip that works as a TV remote control. They're beautiful, beautiful chips. And this was the generalization of them to microfluidics. But the vast majority of chips are not programmable. They're not programmable, they're not FPGAs, because FPGAs are extremely general purpose, but they're kind of power hungry because they have to be able to say a bunch of these things. So when microfluidics came around, nobody really did programmable microfluidics. They did um, what, what the Intel chips are called, these things called ASICs, application-specific yes. integrated circuits. Mm -hmm. And when microfluidics comes around in, in industry, they're single-purpose devices that have a particular channel etched into them not software programmable like this one. So this was something that I said, yeah, like, this never will exist, but it'll be really cool uh, for me to like, mess with this theoretical model and the off chance that one day um, they become like, legit. Um, and if you want to go to asset it, number... So we're looking at a future where <clears throat> the computation is not limited to application-specific integrated circuits or application-specific microfluidics. Exactly. And that's the easy user experience to be able to just pick and choose what comp computes I want to run. Okay. Cool. So the problem that emerged, right? Um, one, what's the programming language I want to give this? Okay, fine. I want to be able to say mix and measure and these very high level constructs and you should boil down, get compiled to just the same way that a CAD tool gets compiled into triple integrals into valve actuation patterns here. And I thought this was really interesting. I worked on it for a while. And then something really weird happened. Uh, if you go to asset 21, uh, the guy down the hall from me made one that was commercially viable. Um, and it looked like this. And I was like, oh shit. Whoa. I thought this was going to be 15 years in the future. Oh man, I can use my code today. Um, for the record. So there are certain things that will be used for application specific yeah. integrated circuits. And but a majority, would you say, of things will be not application-specific, more general? Um, if you look at the empirical statistics on this, it's, it's, it's all application-specific. Mostly um, yeah. in that, yeah, okay. But something that okay. you can do with application-specific controllers is decide what data you're gonna send it, right? You can say, okay. oh, if I have 10 application-specific things, and they can each do one thing, I can weave a protocol, I can weave a program using three of them, or four of them, or five of them, um, the general purpose devices are, are well and good, um, but their, their expressive power isn't necessarily always utilized. And I actually wanted to see a lot more uh, general purpose computing because 
I, a general purpose evaluation of biology, and this was a device that would do it. For the record, each one of these mm -hmm. little squares is an electrode, uh, and okay. by charging and discharging them, you can cause each one of these droplets to like zip like one pixel over. Mm -hmm. This is a device that you don't actually say, it, all it actually can do is mix, and like it can take two droplets and squish them together and shake them around and mix mm -hmm. them. It can take one droplet and split it in two. But the thing about With this- electrodes? Yeah. At the very bottom? Yeah. So it can push, it can kind of like nudge, 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 and these two will come together. Yeah. And then, and then it can also just nudge this one and it'll split into two, like a division. Yeah. Whoa. Um, so, th so this- But programming this thing sucks, right? <laughs> like, do you really, if you look at uh, asset 26, um, this is actually what programming one of them looks like. You get a three-dimensional cube where this is time, where the z-axis is time, and x and y are each one of the little pixels, and you set each one of them to one and zero at every time step t, and from that you're able to pull out uh, a reaction that, that supposes that all you really want to say is mix these two things or mix these ten things, mm -hmm. right? But you have to work with this extremely low-level representation. Yeah. And I was not okay with that. It's the same problem as, as the pipetting robots, yes, right? Yes. Like that incredible device that my buddy made go unused. Unused by people, given it, even its amazing expressive power. Okay, so the, so the, the microfluidics that your buddy um, was, we had in the last asset uh, was, was super sophisticated already, but the problem was that the user experience was not friendly to the creative endeavoring that you wanted to actualize, make yeah. it easy to use. There, there's okay. nothing in that that is good user experience. There is stuff okay. in there that's good technically, but technical excellence is fucking useless if you can't use it, right? Yeah, yeah. So, but then how do you take things like the complexity of a microfluidics mm -hmm. and make a user experience for that and then make a user experience for robotic pipetting? How do you have those things communicate with each other? This is complicated. This is really complicated. It's, it's simplified somewhat by, like I said before, the instruction set of biology. Both pipetting robots, the, the video that you saw, and the, the programmable microfluidic array, like that grid thing, all of them just do mix and measure. And we'd like to be able to address all of these devices as not a programmable microfluidic array that uses valves, a programmable microfluidic array that uses electrodes, and a pipetting robot that uses a three-axis gantry. No, there are things that mix and measure. Whoa. The implementation of that, that's somebody else's problem. But me as a biologist, I want to mix two things. I don't care. Which one you use, just use the best one and make it go fast. And, mm -hmm. and as a computer scientist, you get this a lot, right? This, this computer reads like some horrible x86 bytecode, pretty much ones and zeros, machine code. Nobody writes that. People write in high-level languages like Python that allow you the expressive power to say a, a loop, a for loop, yeah, yeah. or a generator or something very high level. Would you say that you're breaking down biology to its code, mix, measure, that's kind of what That's it, like that's the instruction set of biology, or if not of biology, but of actually doing biological things in a lab. Biology is the instruction set of actually life, but the process of doing research with biology, you pretty much mix fluids with each other. Maybe sometimes spin them or run them through a gene sequencer, mm -hmm. but a mm -hmm. lot of it, and kind of empirically shown by, the, by uh, the, the thing that showed you just how much time people spend pipetting, the vast majority of time is just dominated by like, mix two things, measure one thing into two things. And if you can get those two primitive, that's already a lot of time that you're saving people, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and yeah, but like, like you said, it is, that is, that is the basic, that is the 
atomic elemental instructions that make up biological processes in, in labs. Mm -hmm. um, and mm -hmm. I wanted to see good user experience over that. So that's why I started this company. <laughs> so cool. Like, I love that. In, it's crazy because we spend so, so much money. It's, it's really incredible on making new drugs. And we are so bad at spending that money. It is, it is really incredible. So the numbers are that the National Institute of Health burns 50% Amgen, 79% Bayer, 89% of their R&D budgets? Yeah. Like, um, the, so those research, the, the NIH and NSF uh, have about $50 billion a year attached to biology research. Each big pharma company, if I say big pharma, it's like one of those companies, has about a $9 billion a year R&D budget. And always, at least 50% of that is wasted, not able to be used again research. Because they were unable to prove a definitive conclusion. And what's worse, their buddies across the country were unable to get the same results that they got. Right? And that really bugged me. Because this is like, we're throwing billions of dollars away that could be used to save people's lives if we just spent that money better. Right? Like, if we weren't like, really bad at spending that money. And the fact remains, we're really bad at spending that money. Any field that's called science, that 50% of the time, at best, you're able to do a thing twice, yeah, yeah, that's yeah, not yeah. science. Yeah. Like you're not doing it right. Reproducibility, interesting, your obsession with that. That's yeah. so critical, because that's what one of the most fundamental principles of the scientific method is, the reproducibility of the hypothesis. Yeah, it, it's, it's the thing that she's really allowed us to move, to grow at this exponential pace at society is the, is, the ability to take something somebody else has made and build on top of it. I am not a computer scientist. I would have not been a computer scientist in a vacuum, right? I would have not been able to make silicon chips, understand Boolean arithmetic, understand the lambda calculus, and, and make a programming language from scratch, right? Mm -hmm. That's, those aren't things that exist because we stand today on the shoulders of giants. We would not have our smartphones and laptops with if we were forced to build them ourselves exactly or or if we couldn't take two people's ideas and compose them make one feed into the other and that's something that biology like if you're not doing that then you're you're standing on the shoulders of giants that may be sinking very rapidly into quicksand right um if you're unable if you're unable to stably stand on the shoulders and treat yes. them like bedrock yes, yes biology has not figured out how to make bedrock yeah and that was something that I wanted to see if I could if I could change if it was possible to to make a tool for biologists to make them make their research real bedrock That's that awesome. somebody else could import use and then build on top of to make a greater thing right now you go from scratch every time and that's a huge waste of human effort taxpayer dollars and what's worse i mean fine we waste money all the time defense spending is out of control yada yada this hurts real people's lives. Novartis will no longer be developing new medicine to save people's lives in 2021 because it is too expensive to do so. The economics don't make sense. That's terrifying to me, right? The, it's our, the, the health of the population of society is, is it the best it's ever become. Life expectancy is, is through the roof. Child mortality is, is way, way down. And that's because we've been able to make better and better medicines. Mm -hmm. But the fun thing is that there's attrition. Nature evolves to go whack our favorite tools like penicillin out of our hands because that's what nature does. It evolves. Um, and as a result, our drugs keep have to, having to evolve as well. 
And if you stop being able to make new drugs, you only have a finite amount of time before there are no drugs. And we go back to a pre, a pre, a world before modern medicine, right? What is modern medicine without antibiotics? What is modern medicine without um, like ways to combat viruses that would otherwise be fatal, right? Um, what is modern medicine without vaccines? That's terrifying, right? And I don't think that I'd like to live in that world. Can I throw a wrench in the spokes here? Sure. Let's hear it. Okay, what we're talking about is, um, you know, advancing humans, being smarter humans, and the technology is uh, replacing humans. So I don't understand why you're, you're frightened if uh, you know pharmaceutical companies aren't saving people's lives. We're destroying the planet with you know eight billion strong of us. I just ah. I just want to I just want to throw that in there. This is know? this is actually like a piece of cognitive dissonance in my mind, right? Like humans screw up the planet, but also for some reason we want to keep them alive, right? Like like what do you do there? And for me, I'm pretty comfortable with living with that amount of dissonance. Like, it, it feels very weird to say, like, oh, we want to solve global warming? Like, kill all the humans. Like, that is a valid solution. It's just not a one palatable to modern society. Well, not all of us, but I just... How do you decide uh, that? Well, <laughs> right? like, uh, who, well, we're not deciding. I just, it appears that something is deciding for us. Mm -hmm. But the, the ones that, ex that are allowed to continue... Are, what is their merit based on? Is it the amount of money they have? There's a, couple, a there's, there's, there's a couple. There's a couple. There's a couple points there. Um, you know, w w one of them is that there's potentially a way to update the existing infrastructures that we live in, update the existing minds of the people alive to be able to tackle these challenges at greater um, depths. Um, but to play on the things that you said, and I want to lead this into another point. You used the, this word bedrock. Mm -hmm. and I think bedrock's a very fascinating word because it is in many ways that a field, uh, civilization potentially, even in general, has yet to figure out what is the bedrock for every child that's born into the world for yeah. them to be able to learn that, um, that rather than having to f try and figure it out, just like with biology or with neuroscience or any of these developing industries, mm -hmm. what is the bedrock? Well, how can the user experience be as seamless, frictionless as possible that yeah. enables maximal creativity? And the other thing that I, I want to go back to, to Ron's question for a second as well, mm -hmm. um, I think the bedrock, the, the, the base assumptions we've made about this planet are something like the nice thing about bedrock, especially in programming, NumPy, for example, it's a, it's a math library. So you can go and edit it. You, you, can, you can change the bedrock that you stand on, and it can still be bedrock. Um, and I think that the bedrock of the planet, uh, the, the way that we can really edit that is through biology, right? Um, if, you, if you look at where carbon gets sequestered, it's a large amount of it is in oceans, is through phytoplankton. Yes. Um, and it wouldn't it be great? 70 percent ish. It's a massive yeah. amount, right? Um, I was just talking with somebody today, and like, the other thing that you could do to um, uh, stop global warming would be grind up seven cubic kilometers of this rock that absorbs CO2 when you grind it up yeah. and do that. But that's a yeah. huge endeavor. Or grind up about six billion of us. Yeah. It's like in a meat grinder, you know, like in the Pink Floyd. Uh... Yeah. But the nice thing about biotech is that maybe, maybe just maybe, it'd be really cool if we could edit the phytoplankton to be able to take, you know, 10% more carbon than they do now. Sure, out. sure. And that allows us to have 
some mutability over the bedrock that's Earth. We can, the, 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 the fact that there are a lot of people and the fact that we live on this planet are not necessarily mutually exclusive. So did you, do you get, so Dasha's saying that you can use a solution like a biotechnology to be able to, and there's so many options in biotech to be able yeah. to tackle this. You could have Earth that has even more than that amount of people, but regardless, you still want to increase the overall cohesion of our living with the ecology. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Totally. Exactly, right? Like, yes. one cannot win over the other. If they do, either people die or people die, right? Like, that's kind of the, the two things. But if you are able to get tools like essentially a text editor, right? The reason we're able to edit the bedrock of code is because we have text editors that can go and edit these things. And in, in biology, we have CRISPR. That's a text editor as far as I'm concerned. Mm -hmm. um, and it'd be really cool if we could edit, edit the bedrock of the planet that we stand on yes. to sequester more carbon yes. or to make food five times more nutritious that could feed more yes. people or yes. to, to last twice as long because a huge amount of the food that we produce is wasted, right? Those are our are, are pieces of bedrock that we've built modern society on that hopefully we can change. And, and in 50 years, we'll look back and, and the kids will be like, I can't believe you were slaughtering billions of animals. You have clean meat now, yeah. this type of stuff. And the, the way to edit the bedrock of the planet is biology, right? Yes. You can't really yes. edit it with physics to some extent. You can, that's an atomic bomb. I guess that kind of blows. Um, chemistry is the real thing that really it boils down to is the, the organisms that live in this planet and the planet as an organism yeah. and ca how can we edit that yes. and that's straight up biology yes okay let's walk walk us through the examples of being able to use radix mm -hmm. yeah so first things first we have to be able to describe a program and in biology what is a program well they're lab protocols. They say there, there's a protocol called PCR, also one of the most cited patents of all time, that says if you got a little bit of DNA, you can make it a lot more by mixing your little bit of DNA, some water, something to tell it where the start of the DNA is, something to tell it where the end of the DNA is, and a bunch of free-floating base pairs called DNTPs, and a, a, a really cool molecule called a polymerase, which is to, to stitch DNA back together. This reaction, PCR, once you mix these things together, um, you go and heat it and that causes DNA to rip into two. And then you cool it, and that causes the free-floating uh, um, base pairs to go glom themselves on, doubling your DNA. You do this a bunch of times, uh, and now you have a lot more DNA. And that's a, that's a lab protocol. I've described to you a program yes. consisting of the base instruction set of mix, measure, heat, and cool. Yeah. Right? So we'd like to be able to say, mix these five things, then go heat it and cool it, and then heat it and cool it, and heat it and cool it. And the way this gets described right now in biology is a Word document that says those in words, right? It's not structured. It's not something that automated tools can ingest and really work with. Nothing besides humans can work with Microsoft Excel. Let me tell you that, all right? <laughs> like, or, or, or Word documents. Like, it's kind of a human-only format. So step one is to build a programming language. Similar to how CAD software is a programming language. Um, and so is Reason. Um, so what that programming language looks like for us is kind of like, like Lego Mindstorms IDE looks like. First off, biologists, no programming. They don't like that. No monospaced fonts, no Python. That's too much of a barrier to entry of this, right? We want to make this a tool for biologists, not a tool for biologists that know how to code. So as a result, it looks kind of like Lego Mindstorms, drag and drop visual blocks, mm -hmm. uh, constraints you can put around arbitrary sub-protocols, uh, and that's kind of where we start. From there, uh, 
the question becomes, so now th this has already bought you a huge degree of expressive power. You've, you're now able to share protocols with other scientists um, in an archival-ready format, in something that if a better format comes along, you can write a piece of code to go automatically translate what was old into what is new. Right? That is not something that Word documents have. If English changes, you've got to go rewrite the Word documents by hand, right? generally. Um, so we've already, that's, that's, that's already a major innovation, just the way of encoding these protocols. The second thing you want to do is make a labs speak in that instruction set of mix mm -hmm. and measure and store. Um, and a really good way to do this is with a tactic that computer scientists use called a virtual machine. They say, our machine is very low level. We're going to give you a very high level machine. And we're going to write a way to turn high level instructions into low level instructions. If you look at uh, slide 20, or asset 24, um, Java is an example of this. D the, Java is a very um, interesting programming language. Um, doo -doo -doo. We're pulling it up. Yeah. Asset 24. I'm good. It's going to work. Uh, try okay. 25 then. 25 will do just as well. Oh, this, this yeah, here we go. Let's go back to sorry, 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 sorry. No worries. Okay, 24. But Java is a really interesting thing because it's actually not a programming language. It is a programming language, but that's generally not what people will think about when they say Java. They also think about this programming language that goes and runs on things. Um, Java is really interesting because you can not only run it on your laptop, but also on your Android phone. Right? Those are two different low-level computers. This, the, the, the magic machine-level bytes that this laptop takes is different than the magic machine-level bytes that your phone takes. Your phone is made by, that instruction set is made by a company called ARM. And this is made, uh, the, the instruction set that a computer implements is called x86. And they're totally different ways, totally different byte patterns. And from the perspective of a user, totally different machines. But both of them, from our perspective, would be computers that we'd like to have a button that we can click on. And that's kind of what we want. So Java is not only the Java C compiler and the Java language, but also this really interesting thing called the Java virtual machine. Mm -hmm. right? It's a way to take this intermediate language called bytecode and run it on a Mac, run it on a Linux box, run it on a PC, run it on your phone, and provide the same abstraction. So we needed to come up with a virtual machine that we could plug into pipetting robots, programmable microfluidic arrays, uh, centrifuges, gene sequencers that would give the illusion, well, the, that would sell the lie that biology labs, all that they do is mix, measure, store, heat, cool, centrifuge, sequence. Right? That's the lie we want to sell because that's a, that's a much better base instruction set to be going on. Instead of you must write this dialect of C for this robot and this dialect of Python for this robot and this centrifuge you must like poke buttons on this one you can talk to over the network. No. Centrifuges spin things, they centrifuge things. They, they all are the same. Pipetting robots move fluid it's around. All that they really differentiate on is kind of the capabilities that they express. Mm -hmm. Centrifuges can only spin so fast. Mm -hmm. Gene sequencers have a bit error rate of each, of each thing. And pipetting robots can uh, pipette plus or minus some accuracy. And we'd like to be able to provide, we'd like to look for those and compensate for those just to provide the user with the illusion of perfect mixes, of perfect measures, of perfect, of, uh, uh, of like good gene sequencers. Right? Mm -hmm. So now I've talked about the programming language and I've talked about the virtual machine. There's just one last bit to this. It's to turn those instructions that biologists encode, like PCR, like that protocol, into the virtual machine instructions. Mm -hmm. um, 
our virtual machine is a little bit lower level. That seems complicated. How, yeah, how do you do that? Yeah, um, these are, I would say, the most complex pieces of software that we've managed to make as like, humans. Um, in general, they are tools called compilers that take a very high-level representation and turn it into a low-level representation. Mm -hmm. um, the way that, that we, one implements a programming so language. taking a protocol of PCR and somehow the compiling the reduction into a virtual machine capable. It has to yeah. figure out, given that I want to do this, how do I do it? Yeah, yeah. Those, that's kind of what a compiler figures out. Okay. Um, and to, to hammer this point home, examples of other compilers are, are, are is 3D printing slicing software. You have a high-level triple integral and Boolean combination like bit of math tells you what a shape is. You have a low-level 3D printer. All it understands is like go to this XYZ and squirt some plastic. And how do you turn one into the other? Um, and what do you have to do given that one is very high-level representation, one is a very low-level yeah. one? So 3D printers go through this process called slicing. They'll slice it up into a million individual bits, figure out how to make that layer work, and do that for all the layers, and now you have a 3D print. But 3D printers are not magic. They cannot print overhangs or stuff like that, or free space structures. Mm. You need to, and how you make a, a 3D printer do that is a 3D printer specific problem, right? You have to know the errors of that printer. You have to know its, its tolerances and make and reconcile the abstract concept that you want to do into this low level representation, usually by like adding little supports and little things. Mm -hmm. That's why 3D printers will come with these like, pieces of software called slicers that do that conversion for you. And why it'll come with each individual printer rather than, um, kind of one in, in general. There are some general purpose ones, but like most manufacturers will say like, use this slicer because it knows how our printer works. So you have to make your own compiler for Radix. Yeah. We have to figure out how that we want to make PCR happen. Yes. How do we do that? Yes. And parts of that, like, like adding supports is figuring out like what, where do I actually like, which beaker do I put the fluid in, right? How do I move the robot in such, that, in such a way that this happens? What is the exact 3D cube of ones and zeros to set the programmable microfluidic array to, to allow it to go mix? And what are the paths that the fluid should take such that, and usually these, these compilers have an optimization criteria. Uh, the way they work is, I want to make this high level program work on this low level computer. First things first, the thing has to work, right? It ha that's your, in an optimization problem, it's your subject to. You, you optimize something subject to some hard constraints. But you are still left with some optimization freedom. Um, and that's why um, the things that, that compilers will do is make your code run way faster. That's something that a, a, a programming language compiler would like to do, is say, OK, I've gotten it working. Now let me build an equivalent program that meets the same hard constraints that maybe goes a little bit faster. Um, same with the 3D printers. You want that print to go fast. You don't want to just kind of do a little dot over. If you're making a square, like a filled, like if you're making a cube, you don't. You kind of want to go in a zigzag pattern up and down, not like a, not something that causes a lot more motion. Like do a little bit over here, then jump over here. Do a little bit over here, jump over here. Do a little bit over here. Right? But both of those are valid ways to make the cube. Um, and in our thing, we want to optimize uh, a couple of things. We want to waste the least material. Mm -hmm. right? We want to go as fast as possible, and we want to um, essentially say to biologists, you, you're allowed to provide some soft constraints, mm -hmm. like uh, keep this, um, 
like try and try and reduce try and reduce contamination for this sample. Mm -hmm. right? Maybe keep it a little bit farther from everything else. Mm -hmm. right? Those aren't hard constraints. Sometimes they're un unsolvable, but every once in a while, actually most of the time, you can solve for them and build a little bit better of a program. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, Java is really good at this, and that's kind of the example that I use to do this because Java. The, what happens, it'll actually watch your code run, and it'll say, oh, this looks like this if is hit 99% of the time. Let's just not do it. Always jump to the true case, and then kind of off to the side, check the false case, and go invalidate the result if we, if we screw up, and if it actually is false. Um, and it's a, it's a really interesting thing called a JIT compiler, a just-in-time compiler. Um, what we build is a little bit different. It's called um, an a, a, actually, Java is both an ahead-of-time compiler, that's what this bit is, and then the JVM itself has a JIT compiler. We built, again, an ahead-of-time compiler that says, oh, here are all the beakers that I'm going to need. Mm -hmm. Here is kind of how I'm going to move the robots, because those are constants. Uh, and then we have a little bit of a JIT compiler in the runtime that says, hey, you submitted a protocol that uses water. I submitted a protocol that uses water. Let's just use the same water. Mm -hmm. I guess water. Like, mm -hmm. let's, let's go on and do that. Maximizing uh, efficiency. Exactly. And that's kind of what that piece of software does. Mm -hmm. um, so to provide you a very concrete example of what, what we do, um, our, our like base demo is you pick a drink from a drop menu, like a white Russian or a, or a I don't know, pick a, pick a drink of your choice. And it'll, it'll go and figure out, oh, this is what's in his fridge. Because you, you have to tell it what's in, it's in the computer where it's resources. So you have to tell it like what's in your lab or what's in your fridge. And then it'll go and generate the, the drink for you. Um, there's our second demo, which is making insulin. Insulin is actually pretty easy to make. You take some DNA, you splice it into some yeast, you, you incubate it, you keep it warm for two weeks, you spin it, then you can separate insulin from the cell matter, and boom, you have insulin. So our, our tech demo is like, press go make insulin, which I think is really cool, especially for how cheap it is. It's like $15. Uh, you can buy insulin for about $150. So this is already like something really cool. Um, unfortunately, you can't actually sell that as a product. You can, you can post the code online, but you can't go and make a business around this because Genentech has the patent on that specific gene sequence that you have to buy. So you can use it for yourself, but you can't sell it. And I would like to... But to be able to use insulin for yourself at an order of magnitude less in cost is right? phenomenal, yeah. Right, like that, the, the things you put in, like you sh one of my tenants is like, I really like having bodily autonomous, uh, autonomous control. Like Georgia recently outlawed abortion. Um, right. Right? Like, and that's not a thing that I'm, I'm okay with us permitting as a society. Abortion? Is, um, well, no, the, the, the violating, in my opinion, what is an inviolable tenant of, of, of like a, a conscious organism, it's bodily autonomy, right? If you're pregnant and decide you don't want to be, you shouldn't be forced to not be, right? right? Or you shouldn't be forced to be by, by societal structure. Here, here, right? <laughs> so it'd be really cool, especially if, you're in an environment like that, if you could, I don't know, figure out some way to maintain bodily autonomy, maybe by downloading an abortion pill off the internet and printing it and then using it. Right? Whoa. Like that would be cool. And while I'm not saying We're gonna get in trouble for saying these things. They're gonna come yeah. after us and assassinate us. Be careful, <laughs> yeah. Dash. No, totally. That, that's, a, that's a really, uh, a really contentious example on purpose, mm -hmm. but it, it shows you kind of the expressive power of being able to download chemicals off the internet, yeah. right? And, and that's something I want to see. 
Yeah, well, to, to have a higher degree of agency, a higher degree of ability, degrees of freedom to just pursue. Um, this is very important, and to have it be democratized. Now, you gave you gave you you, you were off there on so many important things: the your programming language, the virtual machine, um, the the compiler, um, how those interplay. Then also the. Um, the examples that people can maybe have relatable is that you just can, uh, Radix could do something as simple as like what happens at a bar with putting together drinks. Yeah. Um, or that um, the something like the process of pushing a button and having insulin be developed for your personal use. Mm -hmm. um, so there's all these different, yeah, examples. Judy McLean on YouTube uh, is insinuating that you want illegal drugs to be accessed by all. Can you synthesize uh, LSD? There's no reason you can't. <laughs> um, this, this ties back into bodily autonomy. I mean, you put in whatever you want to put into you. You can already figure out how to make illegal drugs by Googling it, and this just makes it easier to, to make. Um, I am not a huge fan of censoring w free speech, which would be kind of the removal of these techniques from the internet. Um, but yeah, like one could certainly use it to make illegal drugs, and that's a like perfectly valid use of our technology. In the same way that you could use a 3D printer to 3D print a gun, it with with leaps and bounds of expressive power um, come leaps and bounds in responsibility, right? That's right. With yeah. computers, it turns out we can break democracy, right? Like, and I think that's a, a little bit more important than uh, than uh, the than. Which we kind of experienced in 2016, and yeah. are potentially going to experience again in 2020 if we don't fix some of the errors. But so maybe the same thing can be applied with 3D printing and with Radix. Is that there mm. do there maybe needs to be some sort of a potential control mechanism on on malevolent behavior? So the nice thing about biology is that you need kind of reagents to get going. Uh, and if you go and say, I want to make a bioweapon, right? And you go and fabs. The, the thing is that you can't make DNA in your own home even with our technology. Like you need a lot of equipment to go do so. Mm -hmm. um, and if you go and try to order a Zika virus from somebody, they'll be like, fuck off. No, I'm not giving this to you. Uh, so on the supply side, there are controls, right? It's the same way that we stop methamphetamine production. It's by like not letting people buy truckloads of Sudafed, mm -hmm. right? And we, we control it at the of the physical supply uh, side. Supply side. But there is no way, there is absolutely no way to stop information dissemination. And that's the digitization of what yeah. the information is. Yeah. yeah. And then that's how you can just download. It. Exactly. Like there is no way for for me to stop if I was sufficiently motivated to go out and figure out how to make a gun, right? What would stop what what, what does stop people in that is that like it's hard to get the materials and get somebody to make it for you, right? It's just like you're you're constrained in the physicality of it. The problem with computers and breaking democracy is that there is no physical constraint, so you're able to just break democracy. Um, and but the nice thing about the physical world is that you can have these constraints around supply side of physical goods that that should help with stemming the ability of a product like ours to be used to make illegal substances. And this is a you know this is well we can unpack this more in further conversations that we can and I'm looking forward to this being more uh, of readily available for people to be engaging with and using. Um, what about what about um, at the engine? So yeah, so you guys are a team of what three now? Three, yeah. three at the engine. We are hiring. <laughs> yeah, like which positions? Um, if you want to write software in a functional language, we are hiring software developers. If you are if you want to write 
Uh, if you want to help us out with developing our standard library, these are the little bits like PCR that ship with our product that you can use as primitives, not only just mix and measure. We'll give you some, some things like math libraries, right? Like those are, are really useful things on top of Boolean circuits. Um, if, you want to, if you want to be a biologist and you want to help out on this, like, yeah, we're hiring for that too. And we're also hiring for all variety of business roles because I have no idea how to do business. Do you need anybody to like make coffee, sandwiches for the crew? No, our, our like space that. actually makes us both free sandwiches and free coffee. Perks of working in tech, I guess. Oh. <laughs> yeah. you, you, you almost stole Rod from simulation and moved, <laughs> moved yeah, him over I'm to Raiders. Looking for a new job. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but like, yeah, if, if this is something that sounds like, even if you like don't have a ton of experience, if this is something that you really want to work on and you're willing to put in the hours, like, yeah, give me a shout. Like my my email is on the website and like yeah we are hiring yeah we awesome. pay really well right? yeah yeah and so this is at the engine so the engine is this just epic like what would you, what would you even call it it's, it is an accelerator right it is a and it is a straight up venture capital fund of, but with a very okay. interesting investment thesis um, one just to give you a little bit of idea of a fund structure it's a I think a 15-year fund or an 18-year fund, which is way above the five years that usually people are, are venture funds do payback periods. Two, it's actually started by MIT. Uh, in, yes, correct. Which I think is really cool because they noticed that like Stanford and Berkeley were kicking their ass when it came to spawning startups out mm -hmm. of out, uh, out in the world because they had nicer technology licensing offices and they were better catered to by existing capital sources. The thing about the engine that I think is really cool is that their investment thesis is they'll work, they'll invest on things that are too hard for other people to invest in, yeah. right? Our technology, if it pays itself back in five years, I will be amazed, yeah. right? So as a result, most funds don't touch us. Yeah. Um, but the engine has been really, really helpful because not only do they, they're all, all of their, their associates and partners all have PhDs which is also really helpful because some of our, like when we do user testing, I actually go to some, an associate, like a venture capitalist, I guess, and then say like, hey, you're a biologist that has a PhD in biotech, like please like help me do this. Mm -hmm. And we actually pitched them, the way that they accepted us was, uh, one of the associates was a biologist and she said, where were you like four years ago? Yeah. You could have saved me two entire years of my PhD. Yeah. Right? Like, yeah, yeah. That's kind of how we got investment from them. And imagine how many two-year periods you could save from people around the world, yeah. Right, like, these are smart people doing dumb things, and that's kind of a good place to start. Yeah. Right? <laughs> Making them not do dumb things. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, they're, they're a really interesting investor, and they've been really good to us. Um, that ecosystem's crazy. There's, so, there's nuclear fusion people. Yeah. There. yeah. <laughs> it's also just really trippy, um, sitting next to the guys that actually build commercial, economically viable, fusion reactors mm -hmm. yeah like that's what they fund it's kind of yeah. crazy so and that way you guys can talk about what you're working on get best practices from each other yeah so this this is it's a different vibe in silicon valley feels maybe stanford or berkeley are just super aggressive towards the startup culture which in some ways could be good mm -hmm. while simultaneously harvard and, K, uh, and mit um at least from the short amount of time they've been there seem maybe a little bit less as so jumpy to do startups, which can actually be good in some cases. To they work on much. They work on a lot more science, and science is hard to convert into a, a startup in a five-year profit timescale. Yes. Right? It isn't something that it's well catered to by existing investment models. Yes, yes. Um, and that's something regrettable. And I think that the engine is a good first step in in the Boston ecosystem, which historically, like. A venture firm called Y Combinator started in Boston, and they were like, "Ah, well, actually, nobody spent, nobody invests in startups over here. Let's go to the Bay." Mm -hmm. And the Bay has repeatedly won out over Boston um, 
in in new industries, right? Yeah, yeah. From and Boston has continually reinvented itself to to move as it moved from a, a trading port. It was too cold, so they moved that down. Then it was a textile place, so they, it was too cold, so they moved that down. Then it was a technology place with Route 128, and then Silicon Valley ones, so that got moved out. And now they're a biotech hub. So I think it's really interesting to see how this innovation comes out of fun, like it, it, at some extent in this in, at this point in our in, in human society out of these academic institutions, right? And how many people will just jump to Silicon Valley and then because that's where the money is, that's where the product is. But for a large, large percentage of people that are scientists that don't have startups with a five-year payback period, Boston's a good place to be. Mm -hmm. And that's why they're, they're based there. And as well as like, they have cool toys there, right? Like uh, we get access to like mass spectrometers and things through the engine because they have research partnerships with BU and Tufts and Harvard and MIT. So we get like cool lab access. Yes. And that's something that I really value because it allows us to improve our device compatibility for our virtual machine. Right? It's something really important. Yes. So what about the examples of the, the customers of Stanford and MIT? What's, what's actually happening with them that you can teach us about? So one of them is uh, running a project to do a lot of DNA cloning, uh, which is something that you can pretty easily automate. And they have automated, but not very well. Um, and Another project they're using is actually really interesting. It's an it's a, it's a experiment called PACE, Phage-Assisted Continuous Evolution. And it's essentially a way to say like two bacteria, like I will force you to evolve in the way that I want. Mm. Um, and that, that has huge implications for bioengineering. Mm -hmm. For example, I can, if it'd be really cool if I could force phytoplankton to sequester more carbon, mm -hmm. that would be really awesome. Mm -hmm. right? mm -hmm. And that's kind of the, the research that they're doing with that. Yeah. Okay, okay. And then, um, this seems to be so. Then you have you had this uh, a moment ago. You we were explaining. Okay, these are the people that were interested in potentially onboarding to um, for us for um, for teammates as well as uh, company wise. Companies wise, who would be using Radix? Who could get started with? So this? I can't name names, but what I can tell you is some really interesting use cases. There are some companies that do something called a lab developed test. They will. Uh, take some chunk of you and check if you have cancer, right? And the way they do this is by doing a biological protocol over the chunk they take out of you. Mm -hmm. um, by do, by, and since they're like a thing that you can buy and your insurance will pay for, they have a lot of robots doing this because they're at the scale of where it, it's fine to hire a C programmer to go program these robots. Um, the thing is, though, that when you look at the, the analogy of computers kind of also jumps over there. When, I, when you program these robots and see you're programming in assembly, you're programming at a very low level, you don't have a lot of abilities to optimize your code because the computer will do one thing and then the next thing and then the next thing very dumbly. But you're, the thing that you're trying to actually do is this very high level thing. So mm -hmm. when, they figure, when they have these programmers go and do it, sometimes they don't get great performance. It, it takes really long. And that company is using us to essentially figure out like how can we do this faster? And by if we can just describe our process, can you figure out how to do it faster okay. than we did in 18 months when it took us, that's how long it took them to roll out a new revision of their process because writing assembly is hard. Okay, so for all these burned R&D dollars mm -hmm. that are happening, that, that there could be outreach to companies like Radix that are doing wet lab automation and that you could then use your programming language, virtual machine compiler, that to 
eliminate the wasted money that's being burned in R&D and that you could move things along faster, something that took a PhD two years of time. Yeah. yeah. Should be something, if, if, it, if it took a talented person two years of time, you should not be forced to do that before you can do your thing. You should be able to just build on their shoulders. Um, yes. Actually, it's really yes. interesting also that you brought up the, the, the statement about like, how do I figure out where this is wrong as well? Like that's something that you're gonna have to do as in a PhD, and it's actually something that that customer was also looking to do. They have some errors in their, in their, in their process. Uh, I'm actually just gonna use this to plug a feature of our thing. Mm -hmm. Do you wanna go to asset 28? We're, yeah. Sorry. Yeah, we're, yeah. Yeah. We're, we're, you guys uh, are real. My bad. R Ronnie's in the middle of doing the, yeah, the, the promo graphics. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. But okay. Something asset that, 28? Yeah. Okay. Something right. that both... Um, Debugger. Yeah, 28. Okay. Seven, yeah. Um, but one of the things that's really important when you're trying to build these things that you can build on top of, like that PhD student. Ronnie, 28. Yeah. It's the next one. That is, okay. Yeah, all Sorry. good. It, all good. Just, yeah, we're getting there. Okay. Cool. Yes. Um, when you have an experiment that fails, that fails to reproduce, the thing you want to really do is go and debug it. You should treat it like a bug. There is a bug in your protocol mm. that's causing it to not be reproducible. Okay. And in Java here, there is this very nice thing called a debugger, mm -hmm. right? It's a thing that lets you run your program line by line and then figure out this is where it's screwing up. This is the line where the yeah. screw-ups happen. It's happening. this thing at the bottom over here. These are all the variables that your program has going, and this is like the, the program stacks. You can go look up and up and up as to what called that and what called that. Mm -hmm. And that's actually something that our, our, the, some of our customers have really liked, is because when they have a bug in a biological process, yes. you can debug it and go and- Very interesting. Yeah, Debugging in wet lab automation. So part yeah. of this, when, you, when I said that 50% figure in the NIH, 30% mm -hmm. of that 50% is because like the water they pulled off of the tap wasn't pure enough or their reagent went bad or something like that and they didn't check for that, right? Mm. Um, and something that a debugger will help you do is isolate that to being a reagent as well as another basic primitive called assert. Assert is a very simple function, you give it if it, you give it a thing that gives you back a Boolean, true or false, and if it's false, it'll explode. It'll kill the program, right? Um, this, these are things that should always be true, right? My reagents are always got to be good for this thing to work, yes. right? And those are, those are things that we, we litter, uh, that a, a person with a debugger can decide where to litter across their program so that they can make sure it is doing exactly what they want it to do and can fail in the right place with an error that was, hey, I failed this. Mm -hmm. This number is supposed to be higher than 100. It was actually four, right? Like, that's why it failed. And that's something that's really important. Some of the money that's being burned in R&D could be saved by the, uh, before you even start a biological process to say that it has to be this specific way to make sure that the rest, the cattle, the rest. And that one primitive yeah. assert, that is 30% of the money that is being wasted. Just to put that in perspective, it is like the biggest problem of why we can't reproduce stuff is because they pulled the wrong thing off the shelf. Mm. Right? That's yeah. not exactly, that's something that we shouldn't have a problem with. Yeah. Um, and it's something that this solution kind of very neatly solves. And we've, we've solved, again, like asserts are just saying, I state that this precondition is true. Uh, before, before this, it should be in this state. And that's something that 
biology can do. Like it's certainly something that you as a scientist, before every one of your experiments, you can go validate that every one of these things happen. Or you can kind of do that when it fails a little bit further down the line and go debug it back. Or you can even say like, you know what, I'd really like this to occur on every run, but I'm lazy. Uh, so I'm just going to make a robot do it. And the robot does the assert for you. And that's something that'll give you a really good baseline for your experiment. And that's something that you really want to ship out to people, right? Is, is like, my program needs these preconditions, and only then will it do what you want it to do. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's how, and in, in computer science, we have these test suites uh, that go. I have go, a question. Yeah. The, what are the uh, top used biological processes in wet labs that you need to put through your compiler? What are the top most common ones that need to go through? So the like PCR is one, DNA, uh, like sticking DNA in a, in a place where you can freeze it down in a plasmid is, is, is another. Uh, cell replication is a third. Um, yeah, uh, electroporation, which is the act of taking some DNA and like sticking it inside a cell is another. Um, but those form our, our standard library, right? These are the things that cool. you, you kind of want to have as a baseline. Yeah. You can yeah. do a sign, for example, on a computer. Yeah, yeah. And so th these, are the f these are the questions that I like learning about because then I think it can be maybe more relatable for people listening that want these processes automated with a really nice user experience that can get them to move things forward faster. Mm -hmm. um, and then I have a question. Yeah, go too. ahead. It's, yes. uh, it's very important. Shoot. One of our viewers commented, "Wow, he is so handsome." <laughs> and I just wanted to know which one you think she's talking about. Yeah. <laughs> Ron Vogt. Yeah. That's what she's talking you about. You think it's me? Okay. I think it's you, Dash. I think uh, you're, you're, your intelligence wow. is so sexy. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I love it. I totally agree with that statement. <laughs> Yeah, intelligence is very sexy and it's beautiful seeing it in young people. That's so critical. I'm glad that was a good, that was a good comment. I'm glad that there's a... Yeah, Linda L, thanks, yeah. I'd also, before we get too far from that point, something that is really important before to Before we get too far from me being sexy, incredibly handsome, yes. right? Um, <laughs> it's that intelligence isn't that useful. It's the, the only reason I've gotten kind of where I am today is because I've just put in a lot of hard work. And if you're smart and don't put in that work, it doesn't matter. Yeah. Um, and I, the thing that I am kind of always a little bit angry about is, is that a lot of smart people are so smart that they just view it as not their job to put in work. Whoa. And a lot of very uh, uh, hard work will get you so much farther than just basic smarts, right? Like yeah. we, we've hired people that knew that knew nothing about programming and worked super, super hard to learn. And that, to me, is a much more yeah. um, better predictor of success than, than just being smart. I yeah. think some people understand work as being like labor. You, you know, thought is also hard work, too. Yesterday, we had issues with uh, this old school tape player to get it to work, to do something we needed it to do. And I just needed to work yeah. hard on making that happen. 
time. And, and, in the, and again, one of the things is that stupid work is there's difference yeah. where this repetitive pipetting type thing, um, or like this thing, some, some of the things with manual labor, we see the, the strawberry pickers, broccoli pickers in the farms already, right? These types of things that the, to be able to leverage the full creative potential of each individual's potential expression that they could contribute to our world with. Um, you bring up that great point. It is a, so much about hard work and it actually is about uh, us being able to also ex express to young people that putting in the hard work is what will get these big fruits out of, out of the trees and that you yeah. can then per, per, uh, give to your family and your community and civilization. I, I've always viewed hard work as kind of the, you take two things to make something really cool. You take some amount of innovation, intelligence, and you take some hard work and you multiply the two. If you don't have one, you can do a lot of hard work like these very, very smart PhD students that are doing hard work yeah, yeah. and get nowhere. Yeah. Or if you just have intelligence and don't do hard work, then you also get nowhere. You need both, right? Yeah, yeah, well, and this is one of the things is that when, if there were no problems to fix, you could just be as intelligent and conversate yeah. with people all you want. But we do need to build solutions in the 3D reality that we live in. And this is why this project is being run as a startup, is because in academia, there's really no evolutionary pressure on you to make you work super hard on this thing, right? To make it worthwhile for real people to use. I could totally have gone off in the ivory tower and done this, and it just doesn't have the same impact. Whereas in startups, the real forcing function to go make money and also uh, provide this to users, to people, because in my opinion, computers aren't that cool until they're used by people. Yeah. Um, also on the, on the compensation thing, our product is $1 a year. Um, if you are an academic, a nonprofit or a individual that does not intend to use this for a profit. So like we make our money elsewhere, but if you want to use this, like it is $1, please play with it. It's a lot of fun. Our public release will be in a couple months. Whoa, that's so cool. Okay, so public release in a couple months, um, a dollar per year as a nonprofit or- An individual. An yeah. individual, whoa. And then that's so cool. So this is kind of like the future as it's well. It's priceless, right? Like how do you price the ability to to download chemicals? How do you price the ability to download yeah. shapes? I mean, like you can, but the, is it something you really want to price? I don't think so. And a dollar a year seems reasonable. Yeah. It just lets us, it's actually just easier to give it away for a dollar than it is to give it away for free. Because then we have, like there's, there's a nice clean transaction boundary and yeah, we yeah. have some yeah. ability to talk to our users. Exactly. Are. Yeah. That type of stuff, yes, yeah. yes. And that totally seems like the future. Uh, we're, our content never paywalled. Um, it seems like so many young people are following a paradigm of I'm going to get money from people that have money and then I'm going to provide some of the services that we have to a vast majority of people for nearly free mm -hmm. so that it can be democratized. The technology that we're building can be democratized. So yeah, we can get just, to be, just to be clear, we're also like not so super VC subsidized. We can make good money. Pharma companies are rich and have a, this problem yes. in the billions of dollars magnitude. Yes. So uh, we make, that's kind of where we make our money. But we sell the exact same product that we sell to pharma to you. Yeah. Uh, like there is one code, like in, in Python, you can use it to kind of fuck around on your computer and Instagram uses it to, you know, run Instagram. And that's kind of the same model that we do. There's no, there's no features that pharma has that you don't. And there's, yeah, yeah. Or there, there are some, but they're like not that important to actually doing it at the individual scale. They're really important when you have 200 robots, right? Yeah, they're not yeah. so important before that. And I mean, the pharma or these businesses are working with you on a much more closed loop, fast iterative yeah. basis. But those, well. those things, the, the, the features that pharma subsidizes, 
we provide to that's every so user. nice yeah that's okay. such the part huge part of the future um, okay what about um, other thoughts on the way out about um, about radix yeah did we cover most of what we needed to cover you think in this session yeah I think yeah so too. Um, yeah. another just a just to, to bang one last point home, mm -hmm. um, something that's really important when you're doing science, when you, when you go, when that biologist goes into their lab and like does the thing, they also like write down that they did the thing. Um, and actually they'll write it down in a notebook and you take all these notebooks and you put them in one big box. And before you submit your application to the FDA, like everybody reads all the notebooks in the box and make sure they're all like kosher, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, that's called a lab notebook. And that's another, that's I, like I said before, one and a half hours a day of like time is managing that lab notebook. We don't do that because if you run a program on a computer, a execution trace of it is called a log file. Yes. So like log files are great and lab notebooks are log files. So we just make, we automatically write the, the lab notebooks. I love that. Yeah. That's so huge. Oh, and an like, hour and a half on top of? Yeah, on top of the pipetting. Like uh, when that was a 180 minute thing, that was, that, the, that was the cell cloning experiment, you'll probably spend another 20 to 30 minutes on just like writing the fact that like, yes, this is, this is what the, shells look like, the cells look like. They were oblate spheroids with like some fraying around the edges. But no, we'll just sit there and glom the image into there. Yeah, right? that's great. Oh, yeah. Okay, cool. So log files act as lab notebooks. Mm -hmm. And then that's huge because then that takes you through the process of when something needs to get through to the FDA that there's boom, here's the big file set. And what's better that this, these log files, we just removed the delete command from them. Mm. So like if you want to prove, like make, give a proof to a person that this experiment works, you give them the log file. And that is a valid thing that, I don't know, when you're in an academic environment, a problem now is actually like, people like faking their results. It's an immutable ledger is what you've made. Yeah, yeah. except it's a, a database. But yeah, database, immutable ledger, blockchain, yeah. kind of all the yes, same. Yes, yeah. yes, Cool. So yeah, it, it looks like a, a Do that again with a finger snap. I like that. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, okay, that's a, that's a critical point. Um, and then other thoughts or is that pretty good? I think that's I think, pretty much I, it. I think we did decently well for, yeah, for a short little blurb on on your life and Radix yeah, and I mean, like, wet lab automation. This is me essentially trying to say like, look, these things are computers have cheat codes. We've also figured out cheat codes for mechanical engineering and sound and why not biology, right? So I'd really like to be able to cheat at biology. Yes. That's pretty much it. And unleash more of the creative potential that is actually locked into the minds that are doing repetitive manual labor in, yeah, in yeah. two year periods rather than Think if you about all that creativity that could be used in the wet labs. It just sounds in like... In that simple equation of, of like smarts times hard work, like these are smart people that are not allowed to apply their smartness. And that's criminal, right? Yeah, yeah. Right? Like, yeah. There is no way for them to apply their knowledge with the same amount of hard work that they're doing. And I think that's kind of uh, yeah. really sad. Because like a lot of other fields have the ability to apply their smarts. It's my life story. I'm so intelligent, they won't let me be free. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and, the, and the other thing is, it's great that you gave this historical arc of, of the digital audio workstations. Um, and just that, like, this is a CAD and, and, uh, and yeah, and it's manufacturing. It's a pattern that we can hopefully reproduce, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. Like, that's the goal. It's not novel. It's not as weird as it sounds to go download drugs off the internet, right? It is 
something that we've proven works. And I really want to see it being proved to work in biology. And this is the bedrock that you're building for biology, just like the bedrocks were built in the previous ones and that we need to build exactly. in the future ones. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I love it. Um, okay, couple quick questions on the way out of the show that we like asking our guests. All right, are we alone in the cosmos? Uh, according to the Drake's equation, yes or no, depending on how you set the constants, I don't personally think that we are alone. And it would be uh, kind of sad if we were. Uh, there's a good quote about this, right? We either are or are not alone in the universe. Both options are equally terrifying. So like, as far as I'm concerned, I'm, I'm terrified. It'll be really cool. But either way, I really hope we're not alone because it'd be really cool to, to go see what another civilization that's followed a different evolutionary path has figured out as solutions to their problems. Um, so yeah. I just want to see the technology. I want to see the tech that they got, right? So uh, different rocks orbiting stars that have evolved civilizations have potentially had different solutions to the problems that they face, and it'd be great to be able to communicate with them and learn from them. If we can communicate with them, they have some bedrock. I'd like some of that bedrock because mm -hmm. it'll be different than ours. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, we, we are communicating with them. Mostly just shouting into the void. communicating with us. Mostly no, shouting into the void. You guys just don't get it. You uh, guys don't understand. Yeah, it's really beyond the 3D. Beyond Some of the first signals that we sent off as a human race into deep space were the televised Nazi broadcasts. So like... Is that what we sent? It was some of the first televised broadcasts, yeah. Why did we send that? Crap. We didn't, we didn't send it on purpose. We just like leak RF. Oh, I right? see. And... All right, how about, are we in a simulation? I don't know, I don't think it matters. I'm still gonna do the same thing if I'm in a simulation or not, right? You're just gonna keep leveling up no matter what. Yeah, I mean, like, I, 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 if I could like, get access to my skill tree and min-max some stuff, that'd be cool. But if I can't do anything with that knowledge, like, simulation, you, no simulation. You just, had, you just had this very cosmic perspective on, oh, I want to know what another civilization orbiting star building a society, I want to know how they're solving their problems, yeah. right? But isn't that also part of what, isn't that also part of what we do by making a simulation ourselves is be able to analyze how civilizations solve problems yeah. at big scales. Dude, if somebody's analyzing how we're solving problems, I, I, I really want to talk to them, right? Because <laughs> like, too. I want to see what they think. Yes. You're going to be like, you guys are awesome, but fucking bad at this whole living, like yeah. living sustainably thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? Yeah, yeah. Okay, cool, cool. And then how about, uh, last question is, what is the most beautiful thing in the world? Uh, the typed lambda calculus. What? The typed lambda calculus. The typed lambda calculus. Yeah. And teach it, us about this. When Alan Turing and Alonzo Church formalized the, the world, is Turing it formalized the world of computable functions and not computable functions. We were very quickly able to realize that this universe does not have any non-computable functions, and all computable functions can be done with a Turing machine. And the, and a lambda the typed lambda calculus is that language. If we're going to communicate with an alien intelligence, they're going to know lambda calculus, because it's the one thing that uniquely partitions the universe into what can be in the universe and what cannot be in the universe. It is the most beautiful thing. And as a result, you can express anything in the universe with it. I think that's cool. Uh, uh, so, uh, so a typed lambda calculus, could, could that potentially be that source code of that's, the yep. world? That is the source code of the world. There's not a lot to it. And it's really, really nice. And it's, it's, it's one of the most elegant pieces. It's, it, is, it is the foundation that we have built this idea of a computer on top of. It is why 
you're able to have the you're able to ask me the previous question of are we in a simulation? Because all that a simulation should have to do is emulate the type lambda calculus, mm -hmm. and then we're good. Like we got a universe. Mm -hmm. We have the universe that obeys our laws, right? Mm -hmm. So I, I view it as the most fundamental thing. It's also just really pretty to like work with. Um, I like it a lot. Holy Besides cow. that, like Yosemite, Yosemite. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Additional Yosemite in there. Yeah. The type lambda calculus. Holy crap! Yeah, we gotta we gotta get an expert on that on on the show. <laughs> hey. another yeah. yeah, yeah. You need another computer science. Yeah. You didn't know about that, Alan? Yeah, yeah. Wait, you don't know about the source code, Robbie? <laughs> but yeah, it's it's just it's like the expressive language of this universe. It's kind of cool that we have one and we found it, right? Like, isn't that kind of incredible? Yes. It's like it's like if you found Yosemite in your backyard, you're like, oh shit, that's nice. <laughs> <laughs> this has been such an enriching episode, Dosh. Thank you so much for coming Thank on. Thank you for your time, Alan. We really, we it's love, been a lot of fun. We Thank love you, you so much. Time. Yeah. We, uh, if we can just get a bunch of young people with the same amount of like drive to, to, to. Well, there isn't a bunch of young people that we're looking for. The world is held together by very smart, very strong, but a very small number of qualified people. Remember that. Yeah. And Dash, you're one of them. I stand on, the, I stand on those guys' shoulders. Yeah, yeah, we do. We do. That's right. All right. That's it. Huge thank you, everyone, for tuning in. We love you very, very much. Check out the link below to radix.bio, R-A-D-I-X.bio. Also, share content like this that we talked about biology wet lab automation. Share it with your friends, your family, your coworkers, online on social media, get talking about it. How do we apply things like this to our lives as well as more automation processes like we were teaching about in the episode? Let's keep chatting about it and building it into our world. If this is stuff you like hearing about, I actually run a class out of MIT called Biolab of the Future. You should check it out. Yeah. Biolab of the Future MIT class taught by da Dosh. Check that out as well. And Okay, simulation. Our links are below. We need help. Help with supporting a scale and grow. Also, the other organizations, entrepreneurs, and artists around the world need your help as well. Support them. Help us grow. And huge shout out to Ron Vogus. We love you very much. Thank you for producing and directing. Go and build the future, everyone. Manifest your dreams into the world. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll see you soon. Peace. Woo!